0: You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Phil Hubbard, author of Borderland Identity and Belonging at the Edge of England, published this year by Manchester University Press. Dr. Hubbard, welcome to the show.
1: Hi there, thanks for having me.
0: To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
1: Sure. Well, I'm a Professor of Urban Studies at King's College in London, where I've been for five years. And I've been an academic uh, geographer now for 30 years or so, mainly working on issues of urban inclusion and exclusion. And that's involved doing research with minoritized groups in the city, including asylum seekers, but also groups such as sex workers, and in some contexts, stu- students as well. A lot of my work has been concerned with gentrification, Um, So this book, Borderland, is a bit of a a complete departure for me in a sense it takes me towards a different kind of literature, a different set of geographic debates, but I think at heart it still looks at issues of inclusion and exclusion which have really been at the uh, forefront of my research for around 30 years, but it looks on those questions on a rather different scale because it's looking at issues of nationalism and identity.
0: All right. So the the kind of big event that kind of looms behind everything in your book is Brexit. So what role did Kent play in the debates over whether and how Brexit was going to happen?
1: I'm sure even international listeners are very well aware of the kind of context of Brexit. 23rd of June 2016, a quite unexpected outcome in some ways. Most political pundits thought that most people in Britain were going to vote to stay in the European Union, but it was 52% Uh, To leave. Now, Kent was 59% to leave, so it was higher than the average. And some areas of Kent, particularly those around the coast, were much higher again. Dover, for example, which I'm sure I'm going to talk about uh, in today's podcast, was 63%. The things that we know about Brexit is that the people who voted to leave were overwhelmingly older, less educated, and English. Brexit was a vote that was pushed forward mainly by English people, people identified strongly with being English. Brexit was not something that was particularly popular or voted for in Scotland and Wales, and there are long-term repercussions of that in terms of kind of independence movement in both of those countries. But my interest in Kent is not so much that it appears to be, if you like, a, a microcosm of the UK in terms of voting patterns or attitudes towards Brexit. It's not. My interest in Kent is really that at the moment of Brexit, leading up to the Brexit vote, and in the immediate aftermath of Brexit, there was a real concentration in the media, in political debate and public debate about the type of nation we wanted to be. And at the forefront of that was that kind of idea about Britain as an island nation. And that's a really kind of strong mythology. I guess you could call it a foundational myth. And all countries kind of have those kind of foundational myths. And I mean, in the US, there are myths of the frontier, the founding fathers, these kind of, as well as stories about indigenous natives. So there's a lot of kind of foundational stories of different nations. And in the UK, the idea that the Britain is an island nation is a really strong one. But for that idea to have taken root, and for it to be kind of um, enlarged and indeed kind of emphasised in the right to Brexit. That required a lot of attention being given to the point at England, which is closest to continental Europe. And that's the the southeast coast of England, the coast of Kent. So my book is loosely a journey around the coast of Kent. It's around about 100 miles that i walked. And that area that coast is at times only 22 miles from continental Europe as you walk the coast of Kent you can see France with the naked eye so you've always kind of got that awareness as you walk the coast of Kent you're facing Europe but it's always very close as well and there's that kind of awareness of being both close and distant at the same time being on the threshold being on the edge of England so I was really interested to think about how the, the politics of Brexit, and particularly the new kind of populist politics of exclusion and nationalism, were being played out at the edge of England.
0: Yeah, and then can you also talk a bit about some of the, the bodies of literature or theory that you drew on to help you understand what was going on as you were travelling uh, around Kent? So you mentioned, for example, the idea of the new nature writing and of psychogeography as kind of influential uh theories for your book.
1: Right. I mean, I think most people would expect a book on nation and the border and politics to be steeped in kind of debates around political geography. And that's not to say that I don't think and engage a little bit with some of those literatures around bordering. But bordering is a really complicated process. And if we think about any border, whether it's the US-Mexico border or Palestine-Israeli border, or indeed the UK border with continental Europe, then the processes of bordering don't just happen at the point where two nations meet. They reach out in front of and behind the border in all sorts of ways. It's about geo-surveillance. It's about algorithmic control. It's about the way you present your passport through fast tracking at foreign airports. It's about the way one enters the nation through all number of different routes. So the border is not necessarily where we can best understand processes of bordering. Bordering is something that happens everywhere. But what I was interested in is the borderscape. That is that kind of imagination of the border, the idea that persists in our head that the border is that point at which Mexico meets the US, where Trump wanted to build his wall, or where the English Channel separates continental Europe and France from the UK. So I was interested in kind of reading that borderscape, thinking about it aesthetically, socially, and culturally. Thinking about, you know, what images does it give us? What understandings of identity might we take from it? And there are three literatures there that are really kind of inspirational to me. One is a very kind of traditional geographic literature on landscapes, which goes back, I guess, to Carl Sauer in the US or Hoskins in the UK people who've kind of tried to read the landscape in terms of the way that human settlement is layered upon the physical, uh, the climatological, the geological. Uh, And in that sense, I'm kind of really interested in thinking about the way in which a sense of Britain as the island nation is underpinned by particular ideas about the type of land it is, both above the surface in terms of human activity, but right the way down to the chalk below the Kentish cliffs, which I talk about in the books. So there's a literature on landscapes that I draw on. The second is a kind of a literature on the new nature writing. And there's a lot of this, particularly in the UK at the moment. And this is a literature that thinks about uh, nature and wildlife as not so much endemic or native to particular spaces so it's not so much wandering around the countryside and saying here we see native british nature and everything that doesn't belong is somehow alien but starts thinking about how ideas of nation are made up from that intermingling of things that have come from overseas and things that in a sense are described tradition is indigenous or native so there's a kind of really interesting literature the work of um, maybe uh, Robert McFarlane uh, Carol Donaldson. These are some of the people who uh, your listeners may have come across, mainly UK writers who try to play with ideas of British nature to suggest that ideas of Britishness need to be uh, dislodged and made more cosmopolitan. And then the third literature I kind of uh, drew upon is kind of psychogeography, that really kind of weird and again, quite continental French, but to a certain extent now British branch of writing and we can think here about people like Ian Sinclair, uh, Will Self and others who have thought about using walking as a method to try and tap into the spirit of place, trying to think about what's there but what isn't there, what we can see but what's hidden from us. So those are kind of three kind of reference points i didn't want my book to just be a travel log or a piece of kind of uh, a, a, a kind of journey through the Kent countryside which was about me. It had to be something that discloses the nature of the borderscape and connects it to broader debate. So I hope what I've written is a book that at times reads like a kind of a travel log a journey along the coast that 's the conceit. But also it's an academic book that tries to connect what I'm seeing, what I'm feeling, what I'm hearing to broader ideas of landscape and identity.
0: And I'll I'll say I think you did that very well of bringing together the sort of academic analysis of what's going on in these places across multiple different dimensions uh, with the sort of personal travelogue kind of uh, organization. And so I wanted to ask you about that organization, you know, so the, the book is sort of put together as this walk clockwise around the coast of Kent. So why did you choose that way of, of organizing uh, the book? It's
1: partly a kind of an expediency to it. Um, I used to live at the starting point in, in the book, which was Faversham in, in Kent on the North Kent coast. Around the type of Brexit, I was no longer living in Kent. But everything that, from the time of the Brexit vote, there was so much in the media where journalists and the media were descending on the coast of Kent to say, well, what difference is Brexit going to make for the Kent coast? They were particularly going to the ports of Dover and Folkestone, which directly face continental Europe and link to France. And I was kind of really interested in seeing the representations we were getting of the county, the county of my birth. And I kind of wanted to go back and to see it and to feel it for myself. So my walk was timed so that I was going to finish my walk at the southeastern point of Kent, which is called Dungeness, a really weird uh, cuspate foreland it's a uh, shingle desert in effect and it's punctuated by this really spooky nuclear power station i can say more about that later because i think it speaks to some debates around the kind of the future of uh, of the coast but I, my walk was timed so that it would end up at Dungeness on the day of brexit which was the 29th of march 2019 and i don't know why in particular but i felt that you know if if you wanted to get a kind of a feel for what Brexit was was like and what it was doing, I just kind of felt I wanted to be there at that point of separation, as if something could happen. Now, in the event, nothing happened. It was a non-event. And, and that kind of makes the denouement on my book quite kind of interesting in a sense, because it finishes on the day that Brexit didn't happen, because in actual fact, uh, the Brexit uh, bill was voted down in Parliament. Uh, Theresa May, who was Prime Minister at the time, went back to Europe and tried to forge a new deal. And actually, we didn't, the UK didn't exit the EU until the 31st of January 2020, by which time Boris Johnson, who was one of the key proponents of of leave, was in power. So that was the broad conceit of my book. I wanted to be at Kent. I wanted to see it. I wanted to feel it for myself. And I wanted to end up at the southeast tip of Kent. And there were a couple of reasons for that. One was that my father used to work at the nuclear power station, and that was kind of a personal narrative around that. I wanted to go back to the place where he used to kind of work and think about his relationship and what he would have thought about Brexit. That power station used to be owned by the British government. It's now on, uh, own, on land owned by the French Uh, power generator. So there's an interesting kind of politics there. The power station is being shut down because of fears about um, leakage and rising um, sea level. And after the Fukushima disaster, there was uh, a shutdown of that power station. So I kind of wanted to go to that to think about issues of climate change as well. But there was also uh, an installation and artwork that was being installed at Dungeness at the point of Brexit, which was a phone box. And that phone box, you were asked to leave a message for Europe. So that was there for the entire Brexit week. And I wanted to arrive there at the moment of Brexit to leave my message for Europe. And so at the end of my book, I described what my message for Europe was.
0: Okay, so the next few questions that I have, I want to kind of cut Perpendicularly across this sort of geographical trip, and ask you about a few themes that crop up a number of times, you know, at, at different sites uh, along the coast, uh, and so then you can kind of, you know, pick out the geographical examples that you think best illustrate, uh, you know, some of these these themes. So the first one is gentrification that it's, it seems to be like really intense in some spots and have barely touched uh, other parts of, of Kent. So how is gentrification affecting the landscape?
1: That's a really interesting question. As a kind of scholar of gentrification, it's figured in my work for, for 20 to 30 years. I, I kind of was drawn towards the Kent coast before Brexit in some ways because it's kind of a really strange coast. It's geographically very varied. There's very low-lying marshlands, there are crumbling cliffs, there are soaring chalk headlands, there are really cute sandy coves, kind of classic bucket and spade tourism. So in a very short coastline of less than 100 miles, you've got a really kind of varied geography. And that's reflected not just in the physical geography, but the social and economic geography as well. It's a really mixed coast. You've got some of the poorest housing, in Southeast and most affordable housing in the Southeast of England. You've got deindustrialized areas, which used to be reliant on things like boat building, poor industries, uh, coal mining in some cases, which are now very affordable, but you've also got what have been always fairly quite desirable and almost um, upper class resorts and retirement as well. So I know there are a lot of coastlines like that, but, but Kent condenses that in a very short area. And because of that variation and because of its proximity to London, which in the last 20 years has become massively overheated as a housing market, A lot of people with housing wealth in London have relocated that, their wealth, and bought second homes and summer homes in particular on the southeast coast. So I talk in the book about places like uh, Whitstable in particular, but also Margate, Folkestone, a deal to that some extent as well, where there's been a kind of influx of what we call DFLs, the down-from-Londons, who have rapidly transformed the nature of some of these coastal towns. And I think that's been interesting in relation to Brexit, because some people have suggested, as I said, that Brexit voters tend to be older and less educated, whereas those people who've moved out of London tend to be younger, quite often younger families looking for more space, looking for more bang for their buck in terms of property. They tend to be more educated and they tend to be more affluent. So in a sense, this has created some sort of a contrast, I guess, between a quite conservative, older, less educated working class, in some cases in Kent, who were pro-Brexit, who were uh, pro-Leave, I should say, and London incomers, who in some senses have been quite uh, pro-Europe. So for me, that was kind of quite interesting. And what I was trying to do is sometimes get behind that simplistic division of anticipating that all people who come from London were pro-Europe and all those people who are from Kent are kind of uh, want to leave and are anti-Europe.
0: Okay. Then the next of these cross-cutting scheme uh, themes that I was uh, interested in hearing about is environmental protection and nature preservation. So can you talk about some of the environmental threats to the landscapes in Kent and some of the things that are being done about that?
1: Um, I think when I started my walk, what I, I, I didn't really know what I was looking for, what I would come across. I didn't know how many conversations I would have with people. It was really kind of, it became, I think the weather as well in the time of year I was doing it, was slightly against me kind of meeting hundreds of people as I walked. It was a kind of more of a kind of a reflection on the landscape, a reading of the landscape and its forms. And I was kind of, as I was kind of walking this landscape, now and again I would kind of get, I suppose, ruptures. I'd see things in the landscape that would suddenly jump out to me that were signs of the border. So, things like um, coast guards, lookouts, uh, former Second World War sea forts, radar stations, all this kind of stuff that symbolized a kind of a defensiveness about the Kent coast, a kind of history of trying to keep Europe at arm's length but as i kind of walked a bit more i kind of looking at those kind of signs of human occupation i started to think a little bit more i suppose and, and notice things to do with the physical landscape a bit more and one was very obvious as i was walking the kind of kent coast and the and the english coastal path that is still under um under a, a creation and had only just been completed in the leg that i was looking at A lot of the times as I was walking, I had to divert inland because of cliff falls or because of um, sea level change or um, problems around the coast where they were doing coastal defence works. And this kind of got me thinking about what's going on at the coast of Kent. In some ways, it seems that many people imagine that the greatest threat that faced Kent and England at this point in time, the people who were voting for Brexit, that is, is the threat of kind of untrammeled migration a soft border that lets in immigrants that seeds a lot of the control that britain might have over its borders to europe or so it might seem but actually as i walked i began to see well actually a lot of the real challenges a lot of the problems that we need to deal with in britain today are these incipient challenges of climate change and sea level change because Sea level change will spell disaster if some of the projections are true for the Kent coast, particularly the low-lying areas of the Kent coast. Dungeness, as I've already mentioned, a low-lying cuspate headland. The power station has had to be decommissioned because concerns about Uh, the turbine halls being uh, drowned with water and the potential of a nuclear meltdown in the event of sea level change. So we can see real existential threats to the Kent coast, but elsewhere we can also see the cliffs at Dover retreating at 20 centimetres a year. And even small levels of climate change are going to mean that low-lying areas like the Isle of Sheppey and the Isle of Thanet on the north Kent coasts could potentially be cut off. And we're not talking here about hundreds of years' time. So we're talking about tens of years' time, if some climate projections uh, hold out to be true. So I was really became attuned to ideas of the threat to uh, our coastline from climate and sea level change. Related to that, as you mentioned, are themes around uh, nature and what belongs. And at various points as well, I became really interested in some of the kind of areas of the, of the Kent coast, which are set aside for British nature. Sites of special scientific interest, nature reserves, areas which are designed to, if you like, mark out a territory and say, this is an area of outstanding natural beauty. This is the best that Britain can offer. But as I began to kind of think about those areas, I found that many of them were there to preserve, not, if you like, indigenous flora and fauna, But migrant nature, one of the great kind of um, spectacles of the Kent coast is the the kind of the migrant bird, the wintering bird populations you find at the bird preserves of um, North Kent, the North Kent marshes and down on Romney Marsh. And even the kind of the, the, the seals that one finds off Sandwich Bay, which I think I mentioned in the book as well. These are migrants, but in some ways they have become part of the natural scene that they've they've been protected. And although I may make a kind of a facile comment, if we can, in some ways, assimilate and protect migrant nature, migrant animals, my, my concern is, well, why is there such anxiety about the migration of refugees to Kent? Because that, of course, has been one of the key images that we've had in the media of the Kent coast in England. That's one of migrants coming ashore in dinghies over the last three to four years.
0: Yeah, that actually was the next theme that I wanted to ask you about is the role of migration and its relationship to ideas about race and sort of who belongs in this uh, in this landscape.
1: I guess at the heart of the book is a kind of is that paradox of, of, of the border and bordering. I think we all understand now that in some ways everything you know, our everyday life is shaped by things that happen a long way away. And to some extent, as geographers, we talk about the borderless world. I'm talking to you at this moment in the US I'm in the UK. My life is shaped by all number of transnational corporations that have global reach. Global finance operates at a, a kind of footloose 24/7 uh, scale. But at the same time, borders matter to some more than ever. Some of our borders have become more uh, surveyed, more entrenched, uh, more propped up. Any border implies a differential form of inclusion and exclusion. But what we've found in the UK in the context of Brexit is a populist politics that particularly appealed to the idea that Britain had lost control of its borders. And the, the, the key evidence of that was the numbers of Ill, so-called illegal migrants, we might also refer to most of them as asylum seekers or refugees, coming to the UK through various routes, particularly via the shortest crossing from continental Europe to Britain, which is from France and the, the, the Calais jungle and, and the coast of Dunkirk, Up to the coast of Kent. Up to 2015-16, the majority of those coming to the UK through those routes came through stowing away on lorries or attempting to cross on the Eurostar train, sometimes really perilous, dangerous journeys clinging onto the bottom of, of trains or jumping onto the roof of trains, many fatalities. But as that possibility was becoming more and more difficult, huge Uh, infrastructure of security around Calais made it really impossible for people to cross that way. So Kent has borne witness over the last four years to increasing numbers of refugees landing in rubber dinghies. And that's something I describe in my book, my own encounter with some of those refugees as they land on the coast of Kent during my walk. The numbers are now quite large from very small, you know, tens of people in 2015-16 to 28,000 migrants estimated to have landed in Kent by boat uh, last year. On the 23rd of August, very recently this year, 1,300 migrants arrived in one day, a record. That's uh, in only 27 boats. That's 40 to 50 migrants crowded in every single rib dinghy that's arrived on the shore. And the images of those kind of uh, migrants landing on the uh, on the uh, coast of Kent allows certain populist politicians, and Boris Johnson was one of them, but also the right-wing press in the UK, the populist press, to kind of articulate the invasion of Britain. You know, Hitler didn't manage it in forty five, Napoleon didn't manage it in the 19th century, but migrants are managing it in the 21st century. And this kind of demonstrates the... You know the, the permeability of the border, which is then blamed on the EU. Something needs to be done. So, in the early years, again, go back ten years. If you ask people what their day-to-day concerns were, people would talk about the economy first and foremost, jobs, and the economy. Migration was really a long way down uh, the, the the pecking order. As we approach Brexit the media becomes more and more concerned with migration. And this is reflected in opinion polls. More and more images of illegal migration, more and more discourse from politicians about illegal landing at Kent. And we see migration rising up the political issue scale, so it becomes the key issue on which Brexit, uh, the Brexit vote happens. So people are making the decision very strongly informed by stories around migration and ideas that we've lost control of the British border because of this influx of migration. Post-Brexit, we're beginning to see that concern with migration uh, reducing again as people begin to realise the social and economic consequences of, of Brexit. And at the moment, post-COVID, something of a recession in the UK, migration is becoming less of an issue again. But in the book, I argue that this was absolutely pivotal in people's decision to vote for Brexit.
0: OK, and then... Another one of these cross-cutting topics is the role of art and and literature. So you talk a lot about artworks that you encountered while you were doing your walk and about literature that you've read about these places. So can you tell us a bit about uh, how you chose some of these works and and how you engaged with them and connected them to what you were seeing uh, as you were walking around the coast?
1: Yeah, I guess a lot of kind of listeners won't be that familiar with the Kent coast, but it's a coast that when you walk it is absolutely replete, absolutely pop-marked with different memorials. It's a, it's, a, it's a coastline that's very, very heavily memorialised. There's a lot of public art and a lot of sculpture and a lot of statutory that highlights the important role that Kent has played in a struggle for national identity. So I think that's kind of really interesting. Now, clearly, I I guess listeners can think about all number of different sites in the UK or internationally where we find that kind of density of national monuments. So in the US... <clears throat> Excuse me. We might think about the kind of the mall in Washington as a real site of kind of national memorialization. And in the UK, we can think about you know, Trafalgar Square in the heart of London. But outside of London, I think you've got an absolutely remarkable repository of public art along the Kent coast that celebrates kind of national heroes. The heroes who seemingly defended the British nation in times of trouble the Duke of Wellington, Winston Churchill, uh, Vera Lynn, even mythical figures like James Bond, who kind of personify a particular form of Britishness, a resistance towards, you know, James Bond was written in the context of the Cold War. It was about a kind of resistance to the uh, the threat of communist, the communist bloc and Russia. So along the Kent coast, I kind of kept on coming across these kind of memorials and these pieces of public art that really kind of thicken the plot and get you to think about, you know, whose identity is being celebrated here, which heroes, which stories. And it's not, as I say, always a story about ordinary people and ordinary endeavours. A lot of people have lost their lives at the Kent coast in times of warfare, very heavy bombing in the Second World War during the Battle of Britain and so on. But this is a story about kind of great men and women it's a story about particular heroic endeavour. And I think that's interesting because around some of those sites, in the book I talk about Folkestone, and there's a, there's a road in Folkestone, a hill that as a kid I could, so used to walk up and down. In the last 20 to 30 years, it's been kind of redubbed the Road to Remembrance because it's now known as the road that soldiers walked down during World War I, getting their ships to the Western Front, getting boats from folks and harbour, a journey which many of them would never return from. So now that route, that road is inscribed with all sorts of memorials, crocheted poppies, poppies are the, the symbol of remembrance in the UK. You know, you can't escape that kind of very obvious symbolism of remembrance. So I kind of am reflecting on that and the particular rituals that go with that, that almost coercive sense in which, in living and being at the Kent coast one has to kind of pay homage to the past memories and the the kind of defensiveness of the Kent coast and its role in forging the nation state. But also at various times I hit upon pieces of art that pose for me different questions. Now the the beauty of public art is they're always open to reinterpretation and different meanings. So there's one piece of art that I really hit upon in in, uh, Folkestone which amongst all these kind of tributes to the war dead and the Second World War, the First World War, the Napoleonic War, it's a really simple piece of art where an artist called Richard Wentworth has gone around the town and found examples of what he calls um, non-native plants. So there's a buddleia, the poplar oak, the turkey oak, different trees that he finds around the town, which are described as invaders. And he puts a plaque next to each of them telling us a little bit about their history. So the Buddleia was bought from China in the 19th century. And when I look at that, I kind of think about, OK, well, here's a different kind of you know, public art. It's not saying, well, he, you know, let's think about Britain as something that has been made through acts of keeping you know, people out. It's a nation that's been made by welcoming people and things in, be it plants, be it nature, and be it other people. And I kind of take that form of art as some sort of metaphor for the role that migration has made. The British nation has been made through histories of migration. And before the recent turn to a populist politics of national exclusion, New Labour very much posited the idea that Britain is a multicultural nation. So I'm really interested in pieces of art that perhaps can be read as a celebration of multiculturalism.
0: Okay, so now if I, I, think I understand the the timeline of, of you know how you wrote this book that you finished the the actual walking part before COVID nineteen, uh, you know came to Britain, but then you were you know doing the the writing and, and getting it published during uh, the pandemic. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how uh, COVID nineteen played out both for you personally in the process of creating this book and also in the the landscape of of Kent.
1: But COVID was really, uh, it, it, uh, you know, sorry. I'll start again. So COVID was obviously hit the UK extremely early, extremely hard, and, and and lockdown had extreme repercussions in terms of disrupting the writing of this book. It obviously had um, major impacts. Yet, from the same token, it gave me some kind of new material to reflect on towards the end of 2020, a new variant of COVID emerged, which was called the Kent variant. And for a very short time, around the end of 2020 and the start of 2021, this was the dominant strain of COVID in the UK, thought to originate in Kent because that's where it was first detected. So we not only had Kent appearing as somehow the front line in the separation from Europe, we not only had Kent as a political a hotbed in debates around whether we should leave Europe or not. We also had Kent under the microscope for its potential role in the transmission of the COVID pandemic. It was really interesting for me to start to think about the way that Kent was being talked of. The assumption that some people made was that it was migrants and refugees who had bought this new COVID strain to Kent. So it became part of this exclusionary rhetoric that said... Yeah, we need to tighten our borders. We need to keep migrants out because it's no surprise that the COVID, a new COVID strain has emerged in Kent because that's the place where the refugees are coming ashore. And in a broader sense, I think COVID times get us to think about bordering in interesting ways, because I think if COVID-19 has done one thing, it's certainly hardened international borders in a number of different ways. You can think now about the way in which we travel to different nations. Having a passport is not enough. You could have a vaccine passport. You can go in travel bubbles. There are new green routes. There are new risk routes. So there's a new kind of differential politics of inclusion and exclusion. So, for me, thinking about that was something that encouraged me not to kind of engage with those kind of broad COVID national politics, but to think about how that's played out at the Kent Coast, to think about how we see COVID nationalism existing and written out of particular landscapes such as the Kent Coast. And I think it was really interesting to see how particular commentators blamed a new strain of COVID on migrants and then how. The French decision to close the border to foreign lorry drivers who are in the UK at the Christmas of 2020, stranding those lorry drivers in the UK, was seen to be an over precautionary measure by the French to try and keep an English strain of COVID out. So it's really interesting in thinking about the impacts that made to the Kent coast. And what we saw around Christmas 2020, which was you know a few months after I completed my walk of Kent, new things were unfolding, whereby we saw, you know twenty thousand lorry drivers stranded in Kent with inadequate toilet facilities, washing facilities, parking facilities anxious about this new strain of COVID, but at the same time, scapegoated as a potential vector of COVID transmission. And at the same time, we also saw, in the other direction, refugees still landing on the beaches, put into asylum holding centres, which also became figured as if you like, vectors for COVID transmission. So I was really interested to kind of think about how those new images and stories about the Kent coast reinforce particular fears of otherness, of Europe and of populations that needed to be kept out. So I felt I had to kind of include that in the story. So my book isn't a kind of a straightforward travel log where I say, on this day I began and I walked here, then the next day I walked here, then I walked here. It does cut forward and backwards in time both in terms of deep time and old stories and the way that they inform the contemporary landscape, but also in terms of, you know, pre-COVID and post COVID. And I hope that makes a kind of a more satisfactory book in terms of tying together some of these ideas about nationalism identity. It, it it isn't a book about me. I didn't want it to be a kind of an autobiographical story about my search for meaning in the Kent landscape, or my family's story in Kent. It's the story about the edge of England and it's a story about the new international politics in which Englishness is forged and it's a story about environmental uh, catastrophe and environmental connections which require us to think critically about the nature of bordering because climate change, environmental change knows of no border.
0: All right. So we're moving towards the end of our time here. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to give uh, a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing this book.
1: Yeah, first and foremost, I should say that the royalty for my book is going to the Kent Refugee Action Network. And I felt it was really important for a variety of reasons that I acknowledged their the work that they're doing, because I didn't just want to give the story that what we find at the Kent coast is a kind of exclusionary form of nationalism and racism. Obviously, that's there. There are examples in the book that I give where people were walking the beaches trying to push back migrants, refugees who they saw as invaders. There's this really disturbing couple of stories in the book that I recount where I overheard people talking about mining the beaches to keep the refugees out. So a lot of quite xenophobic, Islamophobic and racist stuff. Yet at the other extreme, I suppose, I also wanted to draw attention to the kind of contested politics of the coast and the fact that there are wonderful people who are extending forms of hospitality. And the Project Kent Refugee Action Network not only provide a kind of immediate support and emergency support to new arrivals in Kent by providing them with, you know, for the kids, toys and games and clothing and offers of food and so on and so forth, but for young unaccompanied asylum seekers in Kent provide things like drop-in centres and daycare centres, educational opportunities, language training, which can be really important. And I think that's kind of really important for me to stress and to... You know, giving my royalty from the book, modest though, it's I'm sure it's going to be, giving that as a kind of a token gesture towards the work that they're doing, acknowledges that there are people in Kent who have a different understanding of the border, that borders are porous, that they need to be porous, and that we need to extend uh, a, a kind of a hand of welcome to those from overseas. And in the book, I do try and unearth some stories to suggest that although we celebrate the kind of moments where Kent was on the front line, was repelling the invaders from overseas. There are other moments where it has welcomed refugees. So in the, 19, in the First World War in the 1920s, really large Belgium diaspora that fled the First World War found a, a home and a real welcome uh, at the coast of Kent in towns like Deal and, uh, and particularly Folkestone. And in the 1970s, those fleeing the Vietnam War uh, found a home. There was a there was a, a accommodation provided for them in the town of Hythe. And if you walk through Hythe today, there's nothing in the landscape per se that, that tells you that story. But I come across the ruins of Moyle Court and uh, a place where Vietnamese asylum seekers and refugees lived in the 1970s. And speaking to people there, I began to unearth that really interesting story. And I contrast that with the more recent, quite. NIMBY, not in my backyard politics, I found with those living alongside the Napier barracks in Folkestone, which has been used to hold recent refugees and a lot of people who live near that are really worried and are really uh, opposed to the presence of young, particularly male, uh, Muslim asylum seekers in their mists. So KRAN, the Kent Refugee Action Network, I think, uh, deserve a real shout out for the work they do at the Kent Coast and for also for putting alternative narratives and discourses of the Kent Coast into the public eye.
0: All right. And finally, we always like to end by asking what you're working on next. What kind of projects are you taking up now that this book is out?
1: Yeah, there, are, there are many answers to that. Let me think. <laughs> I could have a straightforward answer. But as a geographer, I, I never quite know where the next project is coming from. In a sense, my research has always been very reactive. Things have happened. There's been a kind of a local land use controversy, an event that I've seized upon that has, has gripped my attention, I felt something has needed to be said about. So in some senses, I don't know precisely what my next project will be. I'm really guided by kind of questions of social relevance, I suppose. The idea that what we do as geographers needs to speak to ongoing current debates. So in a sense, I guess it's it's good that I don't know what my answer to that question is. What I would say is that partly emerging from my walk around Kent and particularly thinking about the role of non-humans in the making of the coast, I'm becoming increasingly interested in animals and animals and gentrification. And with colleagues, I've been recently writing about animals and gentrification, which are kind of is pushing the type of geography I've done. I'm a human geographer, but this project and the work I'm doing on animals is pushing it in new and I think exciting uh, directions because often we think about gentrification in terms of people and people investing in property, but it involves displacement. It involves populations being moved out. So at the Kent Coast, where we see gentrification happening, it's not just working class people who are being pushed out. I also mention in the book uh, instances where forms of nature are being pushed out. Uh, Badger colonies on the coast of Hyde are being displaced by new development, you know, yuppie development. Um, Urban foxes are being displaced in many cases. All forms of urban nature are being destroyed as the green belt and green spaces and brownfield sites are being built over by new housing. So I'm really kind of interested in thinking about the impact that has on animals, but also pushing that further to think about how we might live with animals in a more uh, productive way. Bearing in mind that I guess as geographers, you know, we need to think about environmental sustainability. That's the big challenge of our time. And in terms of living alongside nature, be it the coast or elsewhere, I think that requires us to think about how we live alongside the non-human, both in terms of flora, but also uh, flora and fauna uh, in terms of various forms of, of nature.
0: All right. Well, that sounds very interesting, and we'll look forward to seeing what comes of that that work that you're doing. So, Dr. Hubbard, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Great. Thanks for having us. And I hope this is a book. I know it's written about a, a, a strange little corner of Kent, but I hope when people read it, they will see that it speaks to much wider themes of identity, belonging and borders, which as geographers, I think we're all interested in.
0: All right. So you just heard a conversation with Phil Hubbard, author of Borderland, Identity and Belonging at the Edge of England, published this year by Manchester University Press.